Well, welcome everyone to the Seven Summits Coaches Corner tonight um, with a discussion with some of the Evoke coaches. Uh, we have a bunch of questions that we'll want to address, and then I would hope that you know you that you folks that are in attendance also should feel free to put your hand up if you've got questions or if when we're discussing one of the questions that was submitted ahead of time causes you to to want to ask some more about that, please let us know, you know, just wave or raise your hand or something like that. So we know you're out there uh, wanting to talk to one of us. All right. Thanks again for showing up. I'm going to start with these questions. Maya, the very first one is for you. And that is, I started your 24 week plan eight months before my event. How can I adapt it to be longer? What part can I extend? Great question. Well, thanks everyone for being here. Like Scott said, it's always fun. Um, I would say it sort of depends on your training background. If you are brand new to training, I would repeat the first phase, which I think is an eight week ish phase. Scott might know exactly. I haven't looked at that plan in a little bit. Sort of that base phase, I would extend it for at least uh, another month, if not two. If you've been doing more training, I would say extend it just the last, like that middle four weeks again. And then the last four weeks, I would repeat as well to make it into eight weeks. I think both Leaf and Scott worked on that plan, so they might have an even better answer. I totally agree that, yeah, extend that base period, especially if you don't have a long background in training. Um, and then, you know, you could add a few weeks to muscular endurance too. One thought I had with that was, if you wanted to add the gym-based muscular endurance protocol, you could do that for uh, a little block of training before you start with the heavy weighted carries. Um, you know, an option if you don't have access to steep terrain and you want to try the gym-based protocol, you could mix that in to switch things up a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you know, for most people, extending that early, the base period, those first eight weeks would be the most important thing. And then um, and then I'd also second what uh, Leaf just said is extending the muscular endurance uh, as well would be my second choice to add on. Um, how many summit, seven summits have your coaches done and which ones and what was their favorite? I don't know who's done the most of them. Maybe you, Leaf? Uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where Mark has been. Um, but I've climbed Vincent, Aconcagua, Everest, and Denali <clears throat> in that order. Um, so kind of went backwards, did all the, the hardest ones first, and, and then I'm just saving the last three to savor them uh, at some point. So I'm excited to go to, to Kilimanjaro and um, Karsten's Pyramid and <clears throat> you know, Elbrus, if that's possible at some point. But um, yeah, for me, you know, I think Everest, I have such a personal connection to that mountain. So I'd have to pick that one as my favorite. But um, uh, Denali too, climbing Denali with just two friends, just a really small group and, and skiing on Denali was a different sort of experience than, you know, a, a larger guided trip. So that was really special, special as well. But yeah, four of seven for me. Yeah, I think I'm, ex I'm exactly the same, uh, minus the ordering. Uh, I've done, uh, tell me which one I did first. I did Aconcagua first, then Denali, then Vincent, then Everest. 
Um, and I've, that's a good question. Which one is the favorite? Um, my favorites tend to be the ones that are remote and have a real kind of wilderness feeling, which, you know, like a quiet, a quiet rotation on Benson feels incredibly remote because you're kind of at the bottom of the earth. I really like that one, but I've got fond memories of, of the Denali trips that I've done. And I've probably done that one the most. I've maybe done 15 or 20 trips up there. So I've got a lot of fond memories up there. And I, th I think those big, just those big, super glaciated peaks, you know, with like a 30 or 40 mile long glacier are just so unique. Um, you don't get that in a lot of places. So um, yeah, those are, those would probably be my, my two favorites for sure. What about you, Scott? Yeah, You've been to. I've been to a couple. I think, um, I don't know if they still count Kosciuszko as, as one of the seven summits or not. It used to be. And I didn't do it thinking I was climbing. And at, at that, at the time I went up Kosciuszko in Australia, it was this whole seven summit thing didn't even exist. But I was down there for a, a ski training camp one Australian winter. And my buddy and I skated to the top of it on, you know, on our cross country racing skis. So not very technically demanding, I have to say. Um, but I've also, I say I've done Aconcagua and Denali a few times, but uh, I think that's, that would be my three that I've done. I'm not sure who else amongst us who's not here has got any of the seven summits um probably got a couple other folks with denali yeah. summits and jack jack like has done denali yeah <laughs> jack yeah, happens to hold the speed record on F denali faster than any counts. of us didn't spend much time up there but <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> no, okay I mean, next question. I don't have to carry much weight for my objective. I'll be using a Sherpa and Porter assist. Should I still do the muscular endurance? That's a directed to Mark. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit situational, but if for a blanket answer, I would say yes, absolutely. Um, I think the muscular endurance training is a little bit misunderstood in that way because it is you know, assuming we're talking about the, uh, the heavy pack weighted carry version of it, you know, it does look a lot like carrying a heavy pack up a mountain. So people assume that it's most applicable or, or maybe only applicable to mountains where you have to perform that exact activity. And of course it's very useful in that regard. And I, you know, and I do love it for things like, you know, like a Denali or maybe like a, an un ordered Aconcagua or a, a Benson where you have to carry a little heavier pack but I think it's uh its effects and the upsides of that kind of training are a lot more far-reaching than just being better at carrying a heavier pack uh there's a lot of there's a lot of movement economy that comes from that kind of training that's going to make you really efficient even if you have to carry a lighter pack um and I think there's a a pure endurance component that comes out of, you know, kind of a durability and a pure endurance com improvement that comes out of muscular endurance training that you're going to want, you know, for these big objectives, regardless of what your actual pack weight is. Uh, and then my, the only other thing I would add to that is, you know, since it was mentioned, uh, or the question mentioned Sherpa assisted, you know, which is predominantly just going to be Everest for the most part, um, you know, on Everest, especially up high, you know, going to the South Pole or certainly on summit day, you know, you don't have a, a heavy pack in the proper sense, but you do have a pack that 
uh, has a little bit of weight to it and with a full oxygen cylinder and a regulator at those altitudes, you know, a pack that, you know, maybe it's a, it would be modest on the scale of, you know, 16, 17, 18 pounds. It actually feels pretty heavy um, at, you know, 28,000 feet. So I, you know, I would encourage people not to underestimate the, the difficulties and the strain of carrying a, you know, a light pack um, at, you know, 8,000 plus meters and muscular endurance would be a really good, uh, you know, training application for that. You work with ME a lot, Scott. What do you think about ME for uh, objectives where people don't carry as much weight? I know we used, we used it with runners in the past with good success. Yeah, I would say it should be a part of every mountaineer's program, <clears throat> regardless of how much, how heavy your pack is going to be. It's going to make your legs more robust. And you know, one of the big problems that I think a lot of mountaineers face is the going back down. <clears throat> excuse me, is how tired are your legs going to be on the descent? And a lot of people get so completely thrashed on the ascent that they struggle greatly on the descent. And the muscular endurance will give you that kind of fatigue resistance that'll enable you to, you know, get back down more quickly. Um, so I think it's, I think it's quite valuable. I would not omit it from anybody going to these big mountains. Um, Okay, next question for you, Mark, is what time of year is the best to climb Everest? Um, why don't people go in from the Chinese side more often? Yeah, this is a softball of a question. Um, so <laughs> Everest uh, in the spring, uh, pre-monsoon. Uh, you can actually climb, you know, assuming we're discounting like Himalayan winter sense, you can climb it post-monsoon, you know, in October and November. It's been climbed that time of year. It, it used to be more i won't say popular but more common that there'd be post-monsoon expeditions to everest and it's just really fallen out of favor so it's it's almost non-existent uh commercially guided post-monsoon trips um there's been a few attempts in the last 10 years and they haven't gone super well so yeah it's uh april may you know maybe very very first part of june uh kind of endeavor so that's an easy one uh and there's good reasons for that like it's it's warmer that time of year versus the autumn. It, the day, the days are longer. There's more daylight to work with. It's not as dark. Um, some people, it's a little less windy if you catch it right. Um, it's a little more reliable as the, as the monsoon pushes a jet stream off the top. So yeah, definitely spring. And then why don't people go from the Chinese side more often? Uh, it depends on your historical question of like, why not more often? Uh, it's been closed since 2019. So uh, that's a good reason why people don't go because they're not allowed. Uh, so that's an easy one. Uh, it, it does have some, it is, well, to back up a half step, it is in theory reopening, uh, and there's, you know, uh, guide services are planning on guiding it this spring. So you will see more, um, activity on the Tibetan side this year. If things go well, hopefully, uh, and inherently there's, there's nothing wrong with climbing on the North side. Arguably there's, there's some benefits, um, there are some complications to dealing with the Chinese with visas and permits that, you know, some years those go better than others. Uh, it can be a little bit rocky on that side. Um, the terrain is a little different than going up the Western Coombe. Um, and there's fewer service providers on that side. So in general, it's a little more expensive. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't paint it as good or bad. It's just, you know, if one side has some benefits and the other side has some benefits. So yeah, hopefully that'll, that'll open this year. And that will also 
Um, I think that benefits everybody because that will ease the crowding on the south side a little bit because crowding is a big deal on Everest, obviously. So if both sides are open, it will help everybody on both sides. Great. Thanks for that, Mark. Um, I think here's a question for me. Um, which is the hardest of the seven summits technically? And what grade of mixed and water ice and rock, et cetera, should a person be able to climb in order to tackle the mo that most technical one? Um, none of them are by their normal routes are, you know, would be considered significant technical challenges. And especially because they're, if you're going with a guided group, or even if you're not with a guided group on most of them, um, where there is difficult terrain, there'll be a, uh, there'll be fixed ropes. And so, but I would say, you know, I don't have any personal experience, but I have coached a few fo folks that have um, done the seven summits. And I think uh, from what I hear, um, Carson's pyramid is probably the most technically challenging because it involves a fair bit of rock climbing. But again, it's mostly fixed, um, fixed ropes. So you're just going to need to be pretty good at jumaring. Um, and then Mark has brought up the point in the past, and I think it's worth reiterating that, you know, the, the ice fall on the south side of Everest presents pretty significant technical challenges, and it's it will be fixed with ropes, but that doesn't diminish the steepness and the, some of the technical challenges, like walking across ladders over crevasses and that sort of thing, which is not something most of us do on a regular basis. Um I know when when my wife went to Everest, I set up a, a elevated ladder in our backyard so she could practice walking across it in crampons before she went. So I figured that was going to be the most the weirdest thing she might have to do there. But what about you, know, Mark and Leaf? You guys have had some experience with this stuff too. What are your thoughts on technical difficulties? Yeah, yeah. I agree, Scott, with everything you said there. Um, <clears throat> I think there is a benefit to practicing and spending some time on steeper, more technical terrain before a climb like Everest or Karsten's Pyramid, if only to have comfort with that exposure. And like you said, everything is fixed, uh, especially those, those harder, more technical sections. But just being comfortable, being confident on your crampons, it can reduce the amount of energy you're using so much if you're efficient and you're comfortable there and you're not over gripping the Jumar and you're able to stand up on your feet and not hang there. Um, so just being competent and comfortable, I think, is really important going into an Everest trip or Karsten's Pyramid. Um, and, and, you know, so spend some time, maybe go on a trip to Ure um, or do some rock climbing in the summer um, you know, it's, it's worthwhile to have, I think, just competency in that terrain. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I think it's two parts, both of which you kind of touched on there. One, I think it really helps people to be comfortable with exposure. Uh, you know, just cause it's fixed doesn't mean you might not be terrified. Um, and you know, cause those are two different things and, uh, you know, being really comfortable with that airy environment, I think really helps people. And then the other thing with, uh, you know, whether it's Karstens or like uh, in the ice fall where you're, you know, you're sometimes rappelling down into these kind of collapsed crevasses and jugging out on the fixed lines. Uh, you know, the the fixed lines provide a lot of security and it's kind of an upper body um, locomotion, but your lower body still has to climb, 
you know, your lower body's not using the fixed line. And so I think what you're saying about uh, like, you, you know, comfortable on your crampons, that kind of thing, that's huge. And that, that only comes from, you know, having moved in that kind of terrain previously to a large degree and, you know, knowing what to do, you know, with your footwork, whether it's rock, snow, ice in the different angles. And uh, that's where like, you know, I used to almost poo poo, like, you know, technical ice climbing as like a training modality for something like an Everest, because it's sort of overkill in some ways until you're down, you know, in the ice fall. And it's like, you have a vertical section of 50 feet and, you know, you and you only have one ascender, which is sort of not the way to do it, but it's the way it gets done there. Cause it's so time consuming to use a two ascender system that you need to know what to do with your feet. Um, your footwork needs to be good for that to be efficient. So just cause it's, it's fixed doesn't mean you you don't need to have some kind of technical prowess, especially with your footwork, I would say. Good points. Thanks a lot, you guys. Um, next question here, definitely for you guys, um, Mark and Leaf. Um, how hard is it to climb Everest without supplemental oxygen versus with oxygen? I would like to climb without oxygen, but is that even possible for most people? So why don't you start off, Leaf, in your experience? Yeah, this is a good one. Um, you know, I would say it's damn hard to climb without bottled oxygen. They, I've heard it. I've heard this this uh, comparison made that climbing Mount Everest is like running a marathon while breathing through a straw. So I think climbing without oxygen is probably like running an ultra marathon while breathing into a plastic bag or something like that. I mean, it is really really freaking hard there's a reason that so few people in the world have climbed everest without oxygen um you know i i, I had an experience of being alongside uh, a climber conrad anchor who's a very well-known climber a high level alpinist and he was on everest sort of simultaneous simultaneously with me in 2012 and on our summit day he ended up following us up to the summit and we kind of had this just saw him appear out of nowhere you know he's the last guy on the mountain he left after everyone and and moved at his own pace and reached the summit just after we did and we were like conrad is that you man what are you doing up here and he was all alone you know no bottle just a tiny little pack uh and he kind of tagged along with us on the descent and i remember chatting with him after the trip and he said something along the lines of that was the most on the edge I've ever felt. And this is a guy who's climbed some incredibly hard first ascents and he wasn't really referring to the technicality of the climb, but he was talking about physically on the edge. Um, and I think over the years, he's even talked about how that no oxygen ascent of Everest affected his long-term health and things like that so it and that's for a guy who's you know a beast like a a lifelong climber uh and so for him it was an immense immense challenge so that gives you a sense of what it what it how hard it can be to climb everest i feel like been hearing more and more interest in climbing without oxygen and um you know it's it's not for everyone like i would just say that that for some folks there just may be genetic limiters that you just don't do well at altitude without oxygen that could be the case um 
I think one of the best indicators that you have a chance at it is a long history of strong performance at high altitude. Have you done well at 6,000 meters? Have you done well at 7,000 meters? Have you built yourself up on these lower altitude peaks and then maybe attempted a lower 8,000 meter peak? Maybe you go to Choi Yu or Manaslu and see how you do at 8,000 meters before you go up to almost 9,000 meters on Everest. Um, and so that's the progression that you really need to take if this is something that you're serious about. Um, it's not something to just jump into and say, hey, I'm just going to go for Everest without oxygen. You really need to be conscious of the progression and and see how you do. If over the years you, you find, hey, I'm, I actually do really well at altitude. I acclimatize well. I feel strong. Okay, then maybe it is in the in the cards for you. Um, but yeah, take it seriously. It is not easy. It's hard enough with a bottle, let me tell you. Mark, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, those are those are super, super good points. I would wholeheartedly echo your sentiment about folks that, you know, are interested in it. I think it's a fairly, I don't want to say easy, but, you know, there's a pathway and there's a progression for a climber who's interested in that kind of thing to kind of test the waters and see where they're at with that. And, and I think that certainly should lead them, in my mind, no question to a, an 8,000 meter peak, um, that doesn't have some of the other difficulties that Everest does, um, at, to kind of test those waters. And, you know, it's one of the benefits of, of, uh, Tibet being open is maybe, you know, certainly Choyo U or even Shishapangma will be back in the mix at, you know, a kind of regular basis for people. Um, and, uh, I, you know, when I was over there last year, um, I, I ran out of oxygen, uh, with maybe, 12 or 1500 feet left in the descent. Uh, and that was, that was basically a, a decision I made knowledgeably that that was going to be okay. Um, you know, just the, the way the day was going and the, and the supplies that we had, but, uh, you know, even walking down that last, you know, 1200 foot snow slope, like from the balcony to, to the coal, which is not a, a particularly technical or challenging stretch and is the lowest part of summit day was incredibly hard uh without oxygen just you know staggering downhill basically it's a the, the idea of turning around and walking back uphill without oxygen you know more than 50 feet which was, was just mind-boggling for me so yeah I, I imagine an entire summit day without it was quite hard uh the other thing i think that gets that maybe gets a little bit overlooked in the the O's versus nose discussion for people that don't have a lot of experience with it is it is insanely hard to stay warm if you're not on O's compared to, to uh, not being on O's and the, even just like, you know, when you're on O's, obviously you, you know, we talk about that, like that's one thing, but you know, your regulator, you can be on quite a bit or you can be on quite low flow depending on what you're doing. And, you know, being on, you know, let's say three liters a minute, which is, I'll say is normal-ish, you know, high flow oxygen. Uh, and you, if you turn it down to one, because you're waiting in line for something, um, you immediately feel cold. Like, and you, if you bump it back up to three, then all of a sudden you're just warmer. It's it's like magic in a bottle, you know? And so I think the, you know, the cold injury uh, aspect for people that are, uh, the risk of that for people that are climbing without O's is just, you know, a thousand times bigger than people that are climbing with it. That's huge. And then the other thing I think is if you're climbing with autos, you really need to learn your body, which the, you know, that progression will help you with that. And the sort of modern acclimatization schedules for people that are climbing with oxygen are just meaningless to somebody who's climbing without oxygen. 
you know, you would, you would really want to do your due diligence and have a program that, you know, works for you so that you can be adequately acclimated because it's going to look nothing like the standard uh, climatization schedule that people are using in the, nowadays. I'll add a couple of things there. I don't have personal experience with that. Well, I do at 80,000 meters, but not in Everest. <laughs> um, but I've coached a couple of folks, uh, David Godler and uh, Adrian Ballinger to climb and um, um, Corey, is, Corey Rich as well, to climb Everest without oxygen. And all three of them were ex you know, very high level climbers, lots of experience. Um, and I've, I was especially with um, David, because he's been to Everest a few times and I've got his ascent rates and to his ascent rate without oxygen near the summit is less than a hundred meters an hour. So you have to think about how slow that is. And the first time he tried it without oxygen was that year that there was that huge traffic jam below the summit. Many people have probably seen that very famous picture of all the folks lined up right below the summit. And David was only probably 300 feet below the summit, but he, he decided he couldn't stay there because he was getting too cold and he, he would have been, have been really dangerous for him to stay. So he turned around and bailed really close to the top for that very same reason you're talking about, the cold issue. So I think that's something to be taken um, into consideration. And I, I would, I would echo very strongly something that Leaf and Mark have both said, which is you need to find out how you do at altitude before you even begin to think of trying to go to 8,000 meters without oxygen. You know, you need to get to five, six, 7,000 and see how comfortable you are there uh, before you, you know, consider doing something like that. I mean, it's, it's dangerous enough that let's say 7,000 meters, it, you know, can be life-threatening. Can, things can turn south really fast um, at, when you're up at 8,000 meters without oxygen. So, okay, let's, unless somebody else has something else or a question about that, um, we'll move on to the next one. Um, oh, this is another one for you, Mark. And this is on that same subject. How many of these seven summits require supplemental oxygen and, and how, do, how do people get started to using it? We can probably keep this one pretty brief too. Uh, basically, just Everest is the only one. There's you know regular use of supplemental oxygen. You know, there's there's occasionally on Aconcagua there is um, a few folks that will use oxygen here and there. And and I know that actually uh, I saw that Garrett uh, Madison had a client and was experimenting with a with a new delivery system for oxygen this year. Uh, Climbing Aconcagua, but in general, just Everest and. As far as when to use it, uh, that that's changed over the years a bit, and it's a little bit individual. But in general, everybody is sleeping on it at Camp Three, and then using it above Camp Three. So to you know, to go to the coal to high camp at Camp Four, and then on Summit Day, uh, that used to be the the norm. Now I would say it's it's certainly not an exception, if not the norm that. Uh, not on the acclimatization rotations because people will commonly go to three on acclimatization rotations and that's not on those, but on the actual summit rotation, a lot of folks will climb uh, from two to three on low flow uh, just to, you know, make that day as quick as they can and, and arrive at, at camp three with as much energy as they can and then start sleeping on it and using it uh, above camp three. So 
um you know that's roughly you know 21,000 feet at camp two and yeah 23,000 feet at change at camp three depending on what tier of camp three you're staying at um so that you know those are kind of ballpark numbers so make getting on for 7,000 meters um is where most people start using it okay thanks mark um here's one for you uh, Leaf, um, I've done Rainier, Baker, and Denali, and I'd like to tackle Vincent or another higher mountain. How much experience should I have before I attempt it? Um, I've done all of the mountains guided and would go guided for um, this other mountain, another Seven Summit Mountain. When I, Which one would you recommend in a progression like that? Yeah, I think Denali, having climbed Denali is already excellent preparation for Vinson. I'll talk a little bit about some of the differences, but Vinson would be, I think, an option for you if that's the next one that, you know, is on your calendar that works with for your training, um, that you have the financial, you know, means for. Uh, something like Kilimanjaro might give you some more altitude experience with a shorter trip and a shorter commitment than Mount Vinson and certainly a lot less expensive. Um, but Vinson would be a natural one to, to put there into the progression. You know, I think Denali and Vinson are very similar in a lot of ways. They have a lot of the same structure in terms of the climb itself. You're dragging a sled on the lower parts of Mount Vinson with a portion of your gear, as well as carrying a heavy pack um, from base camp to the first camp. Above Camp 1, there's a section of fixed lines that's, you know, steeper, and you're carrying a heavy pack up that when you carry a load up to uh, the high camp on Mount Vinson. And then Summit Day is a long day exposed in really cold temperatures that gets a little more technical as you get toward the top of the mountain. So, you know, a lot like Denali in terms of that, you know, style of climb, carrying heavy loads, um, moving in cold temperatures, the winter expedition camping that you do on on Denali, building your camp, you know, your kitchen shelter, all those things are, are what you'll experience on Mount Vinson. Like Mark mentioned at the beginning, like Vinson is one of the more remote of these mountains. It's a really incredible experience. I mean, if you have the chance to go there, it's so amazing. I remember I was up at high camp looking out, you know, at the view and Kind of thought I was looking down at the clouds with these peaks sticking up through the clouds and I was like wow that's a that's a beautiful sight that's like what I've seen on Rainier or Baker but then I I kind of did a double take and saw I was like no that's those aren't clouds that's like the continent that's the ice and I'm just looking as far as I can see is rock and ice and there's no color you know there's no other life or people and wow it is so remote like that so you're really out there uh, in the middle of nowhere. And one of the other things that comes to mind for me on Vincent is like, um, you know, on Denali, this is the case too, where it's, it's, there's daylight all day long. There's really no light on Denali though. I think it's even maybe a little darker at times. You still have that feeling of twilight or night, but on Mount Vincent, I just remember it was like, there is never night down there. And, and, when you were resting or when you were sleeping changed depending on where you were on the mountain. So it was when you were in the shadow that the temperatures would drop so drastically when the sun went behind the mountain and now you're in the shadow, 
those temps would drop to easily 30, 40 below. And it's like, now's the time to go in the tent. It may be two in the afternoon, but now I have to go in the tent and try to sleep now because we're going to wake up at 2 a.m. when the sun's directly on us and start our climb. So there's some of that that you have to deal with, with just like being in this totally thrown off in your rhythms and your routine, um, kind of tolerating all that experience and um, protecting yourself from the cold down there. So those are some of the challenges with, with Vincent. Um, but I think Denali's a great prep for it. You know, certainly you could go to Aconcagua, you can go to Kilimanjaro um, and do some of those other peaks as well. But I don't think Vincent's necessarily something that you need other peaks to go climb. Any other thoughts on that one, Mark, having been down there? No, I think that's, you know, I think that's accurate. And I actually think for most folks, if they, you know, if they climbed Denali successfully and, and felt good with all the, you know, the moving parts that go into that physically, then, you know, they would be fine for a Vincent trip. Um, the, the one thing that you mentioned with like the, you know, when you're in the shade there, uh, it is brutally cold uh, for sure. Definitely, definitely the coldest, you know, place I've ever been. And uh, I do think just, generally just having that sort of just having your act together kind of on the self-care end in those really cold environments you know like you know having the right kit knowing how to use it you know keeping your boot liners and gloves dry so that you can kind of maximize their warming effect and just really watching out for those things that are going to lead to cold injury uh you know that's obviously a huge part of like a denali climb especially like an earlier late season denali but it's even even more paramount on Vincent. it I think it just happens faster there, you know, uh, a day that's, you know, seemingly not that gnarly out where, you know, a, a 15 mile an hour breeze picks up than anywhere else on the planet would be just no big deal that that's cold there. Like, you know, you really need to watch out for yourself. So that would, that would be a kind of the only additional piece there is just make sure you're good at operating in those cold temps. But I would almost argue that like the uh, Vincent trip is like a good set up trip for a Denali not vice versa like if you've if you've already climbed a Denali and you've done well then yeah I'd have no qualms about signing up for Vincent great thanks a lot um let's see this is another one for you Mark how should I find or choose a guide for one of the seven summits if I google guiding companies or use social media I sometimes get messages from those guiding companies local to the country is it better to go with a local company or take a guide with you from North America? Is there a central resource? I find this aspect overwhelming. That's a really good question, actually. And uh, like with anything, all the good answers are on social media. You should just take that, you know, as gospel and run with it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, there's, I think there's sort of two ways to go. There's not a central resource. Uh I think there's sort of two ways to go about it or two ways that people do go about it. One way is to basically use the same company through for all the seven summits, more or less, you know, people get involved with a the company, they have a good experience. If it's a company that, that does all the things they're interested in, they kind of stick with them. Um, and I think there's some, there's some benefit to that. Uh, you know, they're dealing with a known quantity, you know, the customer service uh tends to be high because they you know they know you're a repeat client and they try and you know keep those clients happy so in general if we're talking about all seven summits or at least six of the seven that's going to be 
probably a North American based company. It wouldn't have to be. Um, so, you know, off the top of my head, that's going to be like, you know, maybe the, 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 the three Rainier concessions all offer international trips on almost all those. So that's going to be your RMI, your Alpine Ascents, your IMGs, you know, those are good places to start. Um, Madison Mountaineering offers trips on most of the seven summits. That's a, you know, that would be a good resource. Um, mountain trip and then, um, and climbing the seven summits, which, you know, is obviously named after climbing the seven summits, um, you know, would be another good resource if you, if you want kind of that one stop shopping. Uh, the other way to go about it is, you know, people do, you know, seek out a, a local guide service, which is a little bit what this person's asking about for each um, individual peak. And I would say that maybe that's a little less typical, but there's certainly people that do that. There, that could be financially advantageous because going through a local guide company occasionally can be cheaper. Um, and there are probably some instances where a company that just does business on a solitary peak, um, you know, has a lot of local knowledge for that peak. There could be some small gains there, but in general, these big guys services that run, you know, most of the seven are, are quite knowledgeable. So I think that's a little less typical Avenue. And that's also going to involve just a lot of legwork and due diligence on your part um, to kind of vet these companies. Cause you especially on these bigger, more serious peaks, you do kind of get what you pay for. Um, and in my mind, and that's, it's a, it's a little bit of a bummer because some of them are quite expensive, but I think the competency of the guiding, um, and the, just the way that the, the guides and the company are watching out from the risk management side is generally a little higher, um, with the companies that are a little more experienced, um, and have more experienced guides. So that would be my recommendation there. And I would also add, this is a, this is a nuanced conversation depending on what peak you're talking about. So this might be a good, uh, Thing just to email us about and um you know we can wade into that i'm happy to have a conversation with a person that has a question about a specific peak and maybe a specific guide service because it's hard to give a blanket answer because it's yeah the, the quality of services definitely varies across the board uh, to some degree for these bigger peaks all right thanks thanks very much um maya here's one for you how do i find out what season is best to climb each mountain Well, I might not be the expert on season since I am not a guide myself and Mark can weigh in as well. But uh, as Mark was saying earlier, the warmer the season, the better. And I would say for most of these mountains, there are kind of a typical season. You'll see like Vincent and Aconcagua in the winter because that's their summer. Denali and Everest in the spring. Um, I've had a lot of people do Kilimanjaro kind of December, January, but I think you can do it other times as well. Um, those are kind of the big ones, I would say. Usually if you're working with a guide company like Mark just talked about, there's set times and trips and you would go through them. And if you're planning on doing the solo, do your research and probably mirror when those guided trips are going would be my advice. Mark, do you have more to add or Lee or Scott? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, the you know, in general with mountaineering, like the peaks that are super equatorial are really forgiving with season and the ones that are you know, more northerly or southerly in latitude or less forgiving and have a very defined season. And that's, you know, in the seven summits, that's totally true. Like with Kilimanjaro, that's pretty forgiving. You can climb in the summer, you can climb in the winter. Um, but the other ones, 
as they're less equatorial um yeah they have a much more defined season and uh some of them are you know would be insanely challenging and or impossible um and the other seasons you know i don't I, I I wonder what the what the range of people climbing Mount Vincent is from the earliest to the latest. I'll bet it's pretty small. <laughs> no one's down there any other time of year, that's for sure. Yeah. Let's see. Here's another one for you, Maya. How much running do I need to do to get fit for mountaineering? I hate running. Uh, so... <laughs> the really short answer is I would say you need to do zero running. I've coached many, many athletes to the top of these peaks without any running in their training. Um, just had a guy this year complete the seven summits without, he can't run due to an injury. So totally possible. I would say bigger and more important is how much vertical you can get in. If you are living in a flat area, I sometimes use running as a supplement to training just to get you off the treadmill at 15 to 20% grade or the Stairmaster. Um, but if you like live in a mountainous area and you can be hiking every day, getting in, you know, more natural vertical and you don't need a break from the gym, then I would say you don't need to run at all. Well, that's probably very good news for this person. And I would second it. Yeah. We've had folks that can't run or don't run for one reason or another. Um, there's other ways to get fit than running. Running is just a very handy tool. Um, Next question here. This goes back to you, Mark. For which of these mountains do you need permits? Yeah, that's actually a good question. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but uh, the short answer in one way or another is all of them, pretty much. Um, uh, I guess Vincent is a little bit of an exception because you don't technically need a permit to climb Vincent, but there's only one company, ALE, that antarctic logistics and expeditions that uh that controls all the access there and does all the logistics and you have to be vetted by that company to climb it so that's effectively a sort of a de facto permit system and all the i think the other six all have some kind of permitting in general though they're they're almost all you know to get there you're gonna have a fixer or some kind of company that's dealing with logistics uh even if you aren't being guided and they're the permitting is going to be part of that the I guess the only exceptions I can think of uh, would be Denali. I've coached clients that, you know, certainly go on to climb Denali on their own. Uh, and, you know, you need to register with the National Park Service ahead of time. You know, they need to approve your application and you need to pay for a permit. And I think a summit permit for, and it's Denali and Forker uh, is, was maybe $400 last year. Um, so it's, you know, not a huge amount of money, but it's not insignificant either. Uh, and then the other one that I've had, uh, I've coached athletes who that have done it unguided, um, would be Aconcagua, um, with any regularity. And that also does need a permit. And you would probably also be using some kind of logistics service to a degree, and they can help you walk through that permit process, but you would need to buy your own permit. And, uh, Aconcagua is a little funny. It, it has kind of a tiered pricing system that is probably a rabbit hole. We don't need to go down, but there's a early, uh, there's like a low, medium and high season, depending on what, you know, what time of the season you're doing and mid season's more expensive. And then if you're going through an approved uh, permitted uh, service, that's providing logistics, you actually get a discount. So 
there's a wide variety of prices down there, but it's, I think last year or this year, cause we're still actually in Aconcagua season. Um, that's in that like $500 us dollar to maybe 1400 us dollar price range, depending on which of those categories you fall into. So that's actually, I think when I started working down there, it was $90 or something, um, for a, for a mid season permit. So that's actually gotten to be a pretty good chunk of dough. If you're mid season, no discount, you know, $1,400, uh permit fee so yeah those are those are the only ones that people are really as individuals going down and purchasing a permit um i think just out of note like the i think the everest south side permit uh this year is going to be 14 or fifteen thousand dollars. um so it's a you know if you're if you're buying a i don't know fifty thousand dollar trip or sixty thousand dollar trip which would be a fairly typical trip it's almost a it's a quarter of the price of the the whole trip. So yeah, that's the, that's the big price tag for permits. All right. Thanks. Um, Leaf, does training, does physical training help with altitude adaptation? And is, is there anything you can do before leaving other than using a, a tent? I mean, I mean, sleeping in a, uh, like a hypoxico tent to acclimatize better. Yeah, well, I have a few thoughts on this one, but Scott, maybe you can jump in and help me out as well. Um, but I, I would just say right off the bat that fitness absolutely is the number one and most important thing um, to do well at altitude. I mean, the, the better shape you're in, the better you will perform at altitude. So, you know, training, having a really good long base period, developing that aerobic base and uh, and just being as fit as you can be is is the best thing that you can do. So start your training now. Um, but there are some other things that come to mind for me um, other than or in addition to the Hypoxico or, or other altitude simulators, which you can use in various ways. And I'm sure Scott could speak in a lot more with a lot more expertise about those than I could. But, um, you know, a few things that come to mind for me are um, doing some interval training in the lead up to your trip to get your breathing to a higher rate and get that powerful breathing. When you go up to high altitude, you just have to breathe harder <laughs> than you do lower down. And for some folks that first day at, at a really new high altitude, it's like, I, I'm, you know, I had a client who texted me from a trip and he was like, dude, my lungs hurt so bad. My lungs are so sore from breathing so hard today. And it was like his lungs were not, you know, hadn't developed those muscles around his lungs, those ventilatory muscles around his rib cage and diaphragm that force the air powerfully into your lungs. So working on to develop those muscles a little bit in training, I think is really important. And you can do that by getting into a higher zone, doing intervals or, you know, higher zone training and you want to do it sparingly, of course, and be judicious with how we implement that, but doing some of that before your trip to get that hard breathing. Um, another thing that I think folks have used, and I know Jack has talked about this and I don't know the exact protocols, but is heat, heat training. Um, so intermittently exposing yourself to warm environments, whether it's a sauna or a hot tub, I think has shown to create some similar adaptations that happen to your body at altitude. Um, so there might be some crossover there in terms of 
maybe you can create a few of those, stimulate a few of those changes in your body by, yeah, going and sitting in a sauna for a while. I know my dad going to Everest, he would go sit in the sauna for hours until he couldn't stand it. And I think he didn't know anything that that would help him acclimatize, but he thought, man, the trek to base camp is going to be so hot and humid that I want to be used to it. I mean, he would also do cold training and, and swim in Lake Sammamish in the winters uh, and used to say that he would get so cold he couldn't, he'd get out and take a shower and he'd have to test the temperature of the shower with his tongue because his body was so numb, his skin was so numb. But um, the only other thing that comes to mind to me is going to some high altitude before um, your trip. And I, I wouldn't say it's something where you want to go necessarily right before your trip. In fact, that's probably not a great idea to go, you know, somewhere different than you're already about to go on a, on a big expedition and adventure. So you don't need to fly to Colorado and then leave from Colorado to go to Everest. You know, that might not be the, the best strategy. Um, but spending at some point in your training, spending some time at higher altitudes, one, to stimulate those ventilatory muscles to get your lungs strong for high altitude. Another, to remind yourself what it feels like to go up to an uncomfortable altitude. Remind yourself of that headache that you might experience, that dehydration. Um, just climbing an easy 14er in Colorado if you live at sea level that's a good test of like going up to a, a new altitude. It might not be super difficult technically. It might not be a big expedition you're going on, but it's definitely a good way to see like, how is my body doing up here? Um, and, and learn about how you, how you need to take care of yourself up there. What do I need to do with my layering to stay warm? You know, how do I need to breathe? And I think, you know, relating to maybe, one of the later questions we're going to get into, what is my body? How does it operate? And how do I keep my heart rate down? How do I manage my pace so that I can move all day? So all those things you can learn by going to a place and spending a few days or, you know, five, five days or a week um, just at that, at that high altitude. But I, I would say do that, you know, well in advance of your trip so that you have some time to then focus strictly on training, get your bags packed, make sure you're healthy and, and all those things before you go. Anyone else thoughts there? Yeah, I well, I I don't have an article that I wrote a while back about uh, using the use of those altitude simulator tents, the hypoxico tents, and some of our thoughts on them. Um, and I would I concur with the need to train the ventilatory muscles. And one of the I think that's actually one of my favorite ways to use the hypoxico generator. The um, and there are gyms that have altitude rooms and you can put these generators next to a treadmill and breathe this you know, reduced concentration of oxygen in the air while you're on a treadmill. And what I've done with some of the professional climbers I work with is that they will do their recovery workout on the treadmill. And so they're breathing like they were running a race, but they're basically walking slowly uphill on the treadmill. So from the standpoint of their legs, I mean, what, what Leaf was just saying works, but it's a hard workout. It's a really demanding workout to go out there and run uphill as hard as you can for several minutes and do that a bunch of times. Whereas with this, they get the ventilatory benefit, ventilatory muscle benefit, even though their legs are moving quite slowly. So we would often um, put those 
those special high, it's called intermittent hypoxic training, put those into their training plan on recovery days. It does require, you know, special equipment and that sort of thing. Um, I think that, yeah, getting to altitude and experiencing it so you know what it feels like, you know, there's, there's a great deal of that we don't understand about acclimatization. Um, I was at a conference, uh, I gave a presentation at a uh, special operations winter warfare conference a number of years ago. And one of the presenters there was one of the world's foremost experts on uh, acclimatization. And he had done an experiment that I won't go into in great lengths here, but basically they took a, a genetics laboratory to about 18,000 feet uh, to an observatory in Ecuador. And then they took a bunch of uh, college cross-country runners from the University of Oregon. They took them down there and they conducted all these tests on them. And 25% <clears throat> of the human genome was affected at al by altitude. And about half of those genes were upregulated and about the other half were downregulated. And they only know what about a hand, like a dozen of those genes do. So we got hundreds and hundreds of genes that are being either up or down regulated that we don't even know what effects they have on us. So but one of the things we did that we do know, and I think anybody who spent time at altitude can confirm this, is that there are people who are genetically predisposed to acclimatize quicker than others. And there are some people who will just never acclimatize well at altitude. And that's one of the reasons, you know, alluding back to the whole thing about trying to climb out Everest without oxygen is it'd be good not to spend a hundred thousand dollars to find out that you're one of those people that doesn't acclimatize well, you know, go to your, go to Colorado on a 14 or, or, you know, then, then decide, okay, I handled 14. Okay. Now I'm going to try something higher. But um, so there's a great deal of individuality to it. Um, I think if you're, my experience has been, if you are doing um, a long approach to your climb and you're going to do a traditional acclimatization schedule, then pre-acclimatizing in a, a hypoxico tent doesn't pay off with much benefit for you. Unless you live at sea level and you're going to fly into Lukla at 10, nine or 10,000 feet, then yeah, that it might help you on the trek in. But for someone who's, you know, if you're going to K2 and you're going to spend, you know, two weeks walking up the Baltoro Glacier, by the time you get to base camp, you're going to be pretty well acclimated. And if having spent, you know, a bunch of months or a bunch of weeks in a, um, in a hypoxico tent before that probably isn't going to be as beneficial Whereas if you were going to try to fly at a base camp, which I understand they now do on K2, <clears throat> if you were going to try to do that, then hell yeah, you better be well acclimatized when you step out of that helicopter at 18,000 feet. Um, so there's a lot of variations, I think. This is a pretty nuanced subject here. Um, you, know, you know, we could go on for hours probably just talking about acclimatization. But Mark, you've had a lot of experience with this. Anything you want to add? Mark, you're muted. There we go. Uh, I think there there is a lot of individual variation, which you touched on. I do also think that a lot of people, they they do better with each subsequent exposure to, alt to, to altitude, you know, and it's, and that's not in the, you know, those gains aren't endless, but you know, I, I know with myself and, and with a lot of athletes I've coached, you know, the first time that you maybe go to 
you know, let's say 7,000 meters or above, um, it generally feels pretty hard. And, you know, the second, third, fourth time, there's a bit of a learning curve. And I think your body just sort of remembers what to do a little bit and can adapt a little quicker and a little more thoroughly. So, you know, I, I do think for folks that, you know, have the opportunity to do some of these, uh, you know, I don't say training climbs, but these, you know, maybe B goals that have an altitude component, um, you know, en route to whatever their eventual A goal is, if those have a real altitude demand, they're probably setting themselves up for success, even if that was, you know, six months or a year ago, you know, you've obviously long, long deacclimated, but I think your body remembers a little bit um, how to how to jump back up. And then the only other thing I would add to this conversation, which is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine is I feel like there's there's just so much popularity around the the fastest ascents possible for a lot of these peaks. And there's there's been a lot of erosion of what sort of even the normal length of time for some of these peaks to be climbed in over the last 10, 20 years. Um, and that's not even counting like, you know, lightning ascents or flash ascents with the tent, just like the sort of normal ascents. And if you, you know, if you acclimate average to slightly worse than average, but still fine, uh, you're not getting set up for success with these reduced time frame ascents for some of these peaks you need it. So you should, you know, and, and I am kind of amused, but a lot of times people are shopping for, you know, kind of like the earlier question with guide services and they have, you know, they have two options and it's one person, you know, there's an 18 day itinerary and a, a 15 day itinerary for a peak. And they're like, Oh, I'm gonna go with the 15 day itinerary. You know, it's like, I can be home way sooner, you know? And I'm like, ah, you might want to be looking for the longest possible itinerary. Cause that's the, that's the thing that's going to, and I see it in Aconcagua is kind of like, I feel like the poster child for it, but I've, I've seen so many trips down there where there's, you know, they're big trips and maybe there's a dozen clients on a trip, you know, and they, and they summit with, you know, six summit or five summit, you know, on this, on this fairly tight schedule. And of course, you know, those five blow it up on social media that they, they went to the top and how good it was, you know, and everybody sees that and then they sign up for the same trip and then they, you know, they kind of get their ass kicked, you know, cause they don't acclimate particularly well. So it's, it's, that's where it's really important to have some experience with it and know where you are in that continuum. And if you don't acclimate amazingly, like that's fine, but you need to set yourself up for success with the logistics surrounding these ascents so that, you know, you give yourself a really good opportunity. Don't sign up for the shortest thing you can find on the internet. Um, with regards to, I would agree completely, Mark, that, that multiple trips to altitude there is an adaptation. And I actually have an article um, that Killian and I were discussing at one point. And there's an article I wrote on the website um, that's called The Epigenetics of Acclimatization, because there's quite a bit of evidence now that, you know, I, and I believe that's probably what's happening when you go to altitude. There is an epigenetic effect that you, your body, it's that that's what we're talking about. We used to say you, your body remembers. Well, it actually has your genetic makeup has changed a little bit because so that might be a resource for people that are interested in that sort of thing um okay leaf how early should i start training as a minimum prior to a seven or eight thousand meter peak right now that's it that's the answer uh 
No, seriously, start as soon as you can. Uh, you can't be too fit, as Scott always says. No one complained about being too fit to climb a mountain. So, um, yeah, like you, you really can't start soon enough developing your endurance fitness. I mean, we've got some coaches available, right, guys? So someone, someone sign up with with some of our coaches and get get to work. Um, you know, I, I mean, just to throw a number out there, like I, I would say you want at least a year for the bigger peaks on this list. And and that's if you already have a good foundation of fitness built up. Um, so, you know, take it seriously. Get started early. Um, we've got all the resources for you. So come check it out. Oh, Scott, you're Scott, muted. You're muted. What is the one thing that most people don't think about before they go to a seven or 8,000 meter peak? Mark, you're unmuted. You want to give it a uh, shot? Yeah, I, I mean, it depends on what you've thought about already. <laughs> I think there's a wide variety. If I had to pick one thing, and if we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about over 7,000 meters, then we're obviously talking about Himalayan peaks. Uh, I think that most people underestimate just how hard it is to be gone from home on these expeditions for that long. I mean, there's all kinds of things you could like miss thinking about it, but I think that's probably a big one because for most folks uh, that, you know, we're working with day to day, you know, most of them are not Himalayan veterans where it's like, you know, their third, fourth, fifth Himalayan trip. Obviously, you know, we have a few of those folks, but for a lot of them, it's their first real big expedition. And, you know, like you could, you know, in Everstrip, you could be over there for two months, you know, or more. I've been over there longer than that. And that's, you know, being gone, you know, going to Ecuador for a week or even to it, like even Denali, which I think is, is, can be quite hard, you know, being on Denali for 16 days or something, it feels long when you're in it, but, you know, being gone for like nine or 10 weeks is a completely different animal. Just, I think mentally. And as part of that, I would say that those big expeditions where you're just trying to acclimate, they, they involve a great deal of inactivity. Um, there are just a, there's a ton of time every day, if not days where, you know, you're just sitting around like waiting for your body to adjust. And so it's, it's can be kind of boring in some ways. And I think people have this vision of action when you're mountain climbing, you know, it's an action activity and it's, these expeditions could be anything but action, you know, unless you count like playing poker as, as action, which, you know, it, it can be. Uh, and so the combination of being sort of honestly kind of bored and homesick and, and it's still physically kind of demanding, even though you're not really doing anything, like you don't necessarily feel amazing the whole time. Um, I think that, that sort of soup, if you mix all those together is can be really challenging for people. And in an, an unexpected challenge, um, which, you know, is, is can always break people when you have challenges that are unexpected. Uh, what do you think leaf? It's, it's, it's hard being gone for two months and sitting in a cold tent. Oh man, I couldn't agree more, Mark. I, I was going to say that for the next question about what is the worst part of being on, you know, at 8,000 yeah. meter peak. It's, I was going to say that homesickness, you know, being away from your friends, your family, your normal life, your normal, bed and shower and all those things for a really long time. 
I remember Dave Hahn told me once when he was telling me about Denali, he's like, Denali's easy if you can watch TV every night. <laughs> and he was sort of referring to like, you know, you don't get to go home and watch TV every night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but also, hey, bring some shows on your phone so you have something to distract yourself in the tent uh, when you're sitting there around camp. But yeah, I think that homesickness is really a hard part mentally. It's really hard to be away from all the people that support you in your life. And um, yeah, like you said, two months on Everest at high altitude is just degrading and your body's completely changed by the end of that trip. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot. And so to, to be in it the whole time, to be focused mentally and just keep that goal in your head. And sometimes like the end of the trip, you may have done your rotations and now you're waiting for your summit window. For me, like we sat at base camp for almost two weeks just, and we would do, you know, you'd be hiking during the days. You'd go up to Kalapataru Pomori camp one or something like that to stay fit. But you're just kind of sitting there waiting and you're hearing other teams summit and, Meanwhile, you're waiting for your late summit window toward the end of the season. And it's like, man, that's really hard mentally um, to say. And the other one that comes to mind for me is getting sick. And it's something that a lot of people don't realize about these climbs. And it's like, especially, you know, going over to the Himalaya um, and many of these other peaks as well. There's definitely a lot of chances to pick something up on the approach trek or at base camp um your immune system is suppressed at altitude it takes longer for you to recover from things and so getting getting sick is for many of us a part of these long expeditions i mean every time i've been to everest i've been sick in one way or another whether it's just the kumbu cough as they call it which is just kind of a nagging you know, cough that you develop from the cold, dry air at altitude or a full-blown chest infection that you need to take antibiotics for or a stomach, you know, a GI issue that you maybe pick up along the way on the trek. Those are all things that like are really common on these trips. And so it's not just the physicality of the climb, the mental difficulty of it, um, getting to high altitude, all those factors. It's like people forget like, and you get sick also, and you get your ass kicked from a sickness that you have to overcome. And so I think being resilient and having that resiliency to, to you know, if you do get sick, to get through it and overcome it and still be able to summit is really an important quality on these peaks and go in with that expectation. You might get sick no matter how careful you are um so yeah just just keep that in mind you, i was gonna will, add something you will you will get sick you're you're gonna get i was sick. gonna <laughs> add something from more of the exactly. athlete perspective since both leaf and mark are trained mountaineers and have done so much of this i would say from the feedback i get a lot from athletes who don't who haven't done as much as you two have done and scott as well all three of you is the small details that can be really challenging, not having the right gloves, not knowing how to fuel properly, things freezing, uh, just not feeling dialed and all these tiny details that I think are probably second nature if you spend a ton of time at these altitudes guiding. Um, so I would say something I really recommend for any of my athletes who are new to this, and that's the goal with Seven Summits, is go out with a guide in Colorado in the winter go learn how to be really cold and have all your food freeze in a way lower stakes situation. 
and figure out some of those smaller things before you go to a 7,000 or 8,000 meter peak, because I think it's easy for people to forget like the small little things put on your crampons in a bad situation when you're cold and wet, that sort of stuff. That was just my little tidbit. I have no personal experience on these peaks. So this is just a more coach athlete input. Well, now we've talked about the bad parts of climbing these big mountains. What are the, 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 one of the last questions is what is the, what is the, one of the best things about climbing one of these seven summits? The view. <laughs> the, the view. Come on. Why do you go climb mountains for the view? It's, oh, it's looking out at, uh, at the view from the top is a, it's a experience unlike anything. I mean, I have joked. There's a lot of things I could say, um, but really like that, that experience in nature, um, getting to look out at, you know, a magical world beneath you is, is something special. So yeah, that's why you climb Everest for the view. What do you think, Mark? I, I would say if it's, this is a, if this is a seven summits specific question, I would say the biggest upside for me and a lot of feedback I've got from athletes ultimately, cause there's a million peaks you could go climb, right? Like, you know, this is just seven of like the countless peaks that would, that would give you a rewarding experience probably in some way or another is that it gives you a good reason to go to all seven continents and interact with a culture that's probably quite different than yours is and kind of broaden your worldview in a lot of ways. Um, and Antarctica is a little bit the exception because the culture there is is slim but uh <laughs> but you know you get to interact with your your expedition mates but i just think you know even like you know alaska but certainly like you know getting to go to mendoza and the in the depths of a seattle winter and you know have some long days and you know take in that argentine culture um you know certainly going to you know going to nepal and interact with the sherpa culture like i think those are just those experiences are just invaluable um, and I yeah. think that's, that's probably one of the huge, the huge upsides. I, I think specifically to, to seven summits for sure. Yeah. The stake in Malbec in Mendoza after climbing Aconcagua is worth the whole trip right there. Uh, I could, I agree completely. Okay. What are our last question? And I know this is one you're chomping at the bit to answer Mark is, um, oh, yeah. At high altitude, how can one estimate that you're still climbing in roughly zone two? I assume that heart rate and breathing are probably not good indicators. Yeah, this is a this is a late question that got emailed in. I think it's actually a really good one and kind of a nuanced one. Um, so this this is a whole rabbit hole in itself. But the the person is asking about you know how can you stay how can you how can you tell that you're climbing in zone two when Maybe you don't have good indicators for that. And I think what they're what they're really asking here uh, is what I would call metabolically, are you in zone two, right? Or wanting to be in zone two metabolically, as opposed to strictly defining that by heart rate. Because I would argue, and especially if the altitude is quite high, that you probably will be and arguably may want to be down in zone one for a good chunk of the time. Um, for a, you know, if you're, if you're looking at like a 16 hour summit day, 
at altitude where you have very little oxygen to produce much power, it's unlikely you're going to be at the top of zone two and be successful for that whole time. So I think that's an important thing to understand with the discussion. You're probably actually going to be in zone one, but there is this, which they mentioned that the, the, the you know, heart rate and breathing probably aren't great indicators. Uh, they're not for a few reasons. One, you're not going to be taking your respiratory rate every five minutes while you're climbing. So that's a, whether that would, even if that was a good indicator, it'd be super subjective. That's kind of a non-starter. I do also tend to encourage folks to not fixate on their heart rate while they're actually climbing goal climbs. Um, I think that the, the altitude plays with the heart rate a lot. It tends to be lower than people might think. Um, and also, and this is more like the guide in me than the coach, but like there's there's a lot to worry about on these big mountains on summit days. You know, there's other things that should be more pressing and more at the front of your brain than constantly like looking at your watch and seeing if your heart rate is still 140. Um, you know, there's, there's navigation, there's weather, there's avalanche hazard, there's eating and drinking. There's just like all these things you want to be, you know, constantly thinking about. And you kind of want to be saving your pretty limited mental aptitude at altitude for those things. So, and then the other thing too, is it's, it's hard, like, you know, it's logistically kind of hard to make sure that your chest strap and your watch are working well, like on an ever summit day, you know, and you know, what if it, it doesn't, what if it stop? you know, your watch dies, are you just going to turn around and go home? Cause you can't tell what your heart rate is, you know? So you need, you need to kind of like be set up for success there. And that's where I think that really the only metric you have to go by is your subjective, you know, feeling for the effort level and if it's appropriate and, that, and that needs to kind of lean on a couple of things. It needs to lean on some training and it's probably going to be the long day where you really get a feel for, you know, what does it feel like when I'm in the appropriate zone and the appropriate effort level? And does this feel like that felt? And then more accurately, your previous experiences at altitude and probably on these really big peaks, and this is kind of one of the benefits, on really big peaks, you're going to be doing acclimatization rounds, right? So it, with the exception of summit day, you're going to have seen a lot of that terrain before, either to acclimate or to cache when you go up high and cache and come back down. So you're going to have a little bit of a metric and then, you know, pay attention to your body. And, you know, did you go a little too hard? Did you feel like you, ha you had a little to spare? Um, you should probably tend towards the conservative end of that. But you're going to have a little bit of experience, even if it's just on that peak with the acclimatization rotations, to to know where you're at subjectively. And then the last couple of things I would say is I do encourage folks to, to within reason, to be pretty conservative in the early days of these expeditions. You know, it's a long, drawn out process and you don't recover amazingly at some of these altitudes. So there's no reason to just you know, go to the well and just like have your heart rate right on the rivet on some of these days and just be burning energy that you're going to need later. Be fairly conservative. And it is disconcerting for people, but a lot of times people's respiratory rates are pretty high for, for a fairly modest effort otherwise. So don't be shocked uh, when, if it's subjectively other than respiratory rate, it feels pretty reasonable, but you're breathing somewhat hard because that's what your body does in low oxygen environments. Anybody, I think this is a good question, actually. Does anybody else have anything to weigh in uh, for indicators on this? Yeah, I, this it is a great question. And I think it's maybe one of the, probably one of the hardest to answer properly because 
as I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about that, you know, you, the use of intermittent hypoxic training, when you're at 7,000 meters, you will feel like you're doing, you know, 400 meter intervals on the track. You're going to be breathing like, you know, it's full out, but you're going to be moving at literally a snail's pace. And interestingly, so several, quite a few, quite a few years ago now, um, I was working with uh, David Godler and Uli Steck in preparation for uh, a climb they did on the uh, on Shishapangma. And as a climatization for that, they went to the Kumbu region in Nepal and they acclimatized there before going to Tibet. And in the process of that acclimatization, one of the things they did was to set the speed record on, not, a, not necessarily they were trying to set the speed record, but they did set the speed record on Island Peak, which is one of the popular acclimatization peaks near Everest. It's in the Kumbu Valley. And so the, these were two extremely fit professional alpinists um, who are well acclimated. <clears throat> and I got their heart rate data that downloaded to our training peaks and neither one of them ever topped 120 heart rate the whole day. And that was setting the, the, the fastest time it's ever been done. If I was five, roughly five hours from um, base camp to the summit or from, uh, they were actually starting in Chukung, not even at base right. camp. So from Chukung to the summit and back in five hours, 120 heart rate. So there just isn't enough oxygen to support much powerful, very powerful movement. That's the main reason we are we stress so heavily the importance of this aerobic base training for people going to altitude, because that's all you're going to be able to to manage. You know the 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 use of the interval training that Leaf mentioned or that I was talking about has nothing to do with making you fitter so you can go uphill faster. Really, that's insignificant. The benefit the benef you could get you'll get a little benefit, but it's pretty insignificant because you're going to be operating as Mark said primarily in, you know, metabolically in zone one, um, which is why you can spend all this type, this training in this very low, uh, low intensity zone. So I'll just throw that out there as a kind of as a benchmark that, you know, you, you're not going to be worried about. That's why I agree with Mark. I don't think that even taking a heart rate monitor chest strap or anything like that is, is worth it. Um, it's just going to make your battery and your watch go dead a lot sooner. Um, so yeah, just, and by but getting the feel for what it's like, uh, and and you should be able to do that during your acclimatization, um, whether it's on the on the main peak or on some other smaller um, nearby mountain, you'll get a feel for how fast you can move. But I had one ex experience like of doing something hard at altitude once in an emergency situation, <clears throat> and where I literally had to run, um, and. I, I probably only ran for like 10 minutes and I was, a, I was trash for a week for that. It just, it took that much out of me and I was pretty fit going into that climb. So I, you, you just can't, you can't, you don't want to go there. Um, you know, going into that, you know, any kind of high intensity is going to make you have a very short and unhappy trip probably. So, um, well, I don't know if we have anything else. We we have it was the end of our questions. Anybody else have questions in the audience? We can, um, and if not, we might wrap it up. Anything closing comments from any of you guys? Maya, Mark, Leaf. I think those were a, those were a lot of uh, 
good questions. We covered a lot of territory there. You know, there's a, there's a lot of nuance to it. Um, and, and these, you know, these, if we're you know, specific to seven summits, you know, there's a broad range of peaks and, and demands for these different peaks. So, you know, if folks have further questions about specifics, you know, they can reach out to us by email. Um, you know, they can post questions on our forum, which we monitor, which is a good place. If you have questions, you want input from coaches. So yeah, reach out. All righty. Well, thanks everybody for coming. And um, thanks to you coaches for taking time this evening to, to join me. And um, we'll be posting this on our podcasts here probably in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for that. Good evening, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Scott. Bye. Bye now.